Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. I'm going to warn everybody ahead of time. This is a personal indulgence podcast. I have been fascinated by epimediums as a group for a long time. We've talked about them here or there in, in spots on social media, a little bit on the podcast. But I felt it was really important that we we define this because this is not a plant that every gardener is super, super familiar with, although you should be people. What are you doing with your lives? And with me today, I've got Karen Perkins, who is the owner of Garden Vision Epimediums. Karen, I've got to go here first. How did you get in, into epimediums? You know, with so many people, there's a particular reason or story behind how a plant captivates them. What was your history with epimediums? Well, my history is through association. Actually, I didn't start this nursery. It was started by my ex-husband, Daryl Probst, and he was fascinated by epimediums, I think mostly because he likes plants that are not in your face, that have sort of a delicate beauty, and he also was aggravated that he couldn't get his hands on any kind of a selection of them. So he started writing to people who he had heard had collections of epimediums, both in the United States and overseas, and collecting them. And um, he ended up getting invited on a trip, a plant-collecting trip to China with um, 11 other uh, nursery and botanic garden professionals. And they spent like three or four days out of a, I think it was like a month-long trip uh, searching for epimediums. And then he was hooked and he went back uh, a couple of times. He went to Japan, he went to Korea, and collected some in the nurseries and also in the wild there in their native habitats. So the nursery actually started as um, an out an, an outgrowth of his obsession with the plant. It was a way for him to finance his collecting trips and also a way to get them into the hands of people that are gardening because many epimediums, especially the ones in China, are over-collected in the wild for medicinal purposes. So um, he wanted people to start growing them um, in the United States. Which is one of these fascinating things with epimedium. And sometimes this is true, Karen, for like the whole plant world, right? We have mm -hmm. a collector community. And then we've sort of got like the mainstream garden, large-scale nursery grower kind of world. Is one of the reasons why epimediums haven't maybe been so mainstream is because it's not that like in your face. You mentioned like with with your ex-husband Daryl that his he liked things that maybe are a little more understated. Do you think that's it? Do you think they just they take a while to become their best? Like what's kept Epimedium from maybe being this mainstream gardening plant? I think there's a lot of reasons. There's there's so many there's thousands of good gardening plants and um the minds just can't keep them all in there unless you're a plant geek. So most people are, most people that are gardeners are not real plant geeks. Um, that's part of the problem, that there's too many plants that would do well in our gardens to have them all in there. Um, another reason, I've talked to nurserymen, and I know this from propagating epimediums in the last 20 years, they're slow. They're slower growing than many other, mostly the herbaceous perennials. Nurserymen want a perennial to fill up a gallon pot in two months time. And an epimedium is not going to do that. So um, it takes them longer time to, 
to develop into a saleable plant. So they tend to um, be a little bit more expensive in the nurseries because they've had to, you know, the nursery person has had to grow them for a longer time than many of the other plants that he has. So there's uh, there's several reasons. I'm lucky in that ephemediums are not only a collector's plant, but they're also easy to grow for novice gardeners. So um, my customers range from botanic gardens who are making collections to nursery owners to backyard home gardeners that don't even know what an epimedium is. They're easy to grow, and they tick a lot of boxes in terms of um, what's good about them, their their uh, garden benefits. Isn't that interesting that you say that, that it's an easy-to-grow plant, or people have success with it at least, you know, who are willing to garden, but then it's not a fast plant for nursery production. Right. Does it's it like ev- a tree. It's a woody plant, so it's a slow, slow process. D- does that ever – do you think that's under-communicated sometimes, right, by the nursery industry and versus like a small, uh, more specialty nursery like your own, that there's that difference, right, that a lot of people in like the, the general audience are unaware of? That the plant you see at that garden center sometimes it's just a fast growing plant, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best plant, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's even sometimes an easy plant or that it'll look good two years later. Right, it isn't communicated. I think probably many of the nurseries that buy them in to resell them don't even know that they're woody plants. Yeah, it's so. Let's dive in to the epimediums here, Karen, together. Okay. Give me the the three or four big species epimediums currently that a lot of cultivated varieties are coming from. Their their species parentage. Well, um, most of the cultivated varieties are coming from the Japanese epimediums that were on the market in the market um, a long time ago. Not very um, not very widely distributed, but um, the Japanese have been hybridizing epimediums for many, many years. So there's a they have a long list. The Graniflorums and Diphyllum and um, Sempervirens have most of the cultivars because they, they've been in cultivation for a long time. Um, some of the newer uh, species, newer species uh, described in the scientific literature are coming out of China. And they are uh, sort of what people consider collector plants right now. They're, they tend to be evergreen. They're not as uh, drought tolerant as many of the other epimediums that you can buy, um, but they're very different looking. They have uh, sort of substantial leaves, um, substantial thick evergreen leaves, and many of them have arrow-shaped leaves instead of the deciduous heart-shaped leaves that we're familiar with in terms of um, the Japanese and Korean species. So are some of those, like Elisifolium, I know Spine Tingler is a yes. cultivar that's starting to get out there a little yes, bit in yes. the market. Is that an example of that? It is an example. And actually, I have a little bit of trouble growing a lot of the Chinese species um, because I'm sort of at the uh, northern range of their hardiness. Um, so m- many of the, the species don't grow all that well for me. They would grow uh, better further south. I'm in Massachusetts here with the nursery. Now, that's an interesting fact there. So as you mentioned, you're in Massachusetts. 
what generally speaking, so I'm all, I'm all the way down in Tennessee, but I've seen them perform actually really well here. Uh, mm-hmm. Udell Botanical Gardens, which is up in Kentucky, has a pretty decent collection of epimediums that have been there for a moment. What's sort of the general range? Well, let's tackle winter hardiness first, and then we'll talk about some other things as far as what they like best. But what's that general range for a lot of the epimediums? I would say in general, um, I'm in zone five, and what I do in my uh, descriptions is describe how they grow for me. For you, your season would be much longer, so you would probably get a larger plant and much more growth out of it than I would, and and a lot of the you know, more tender species like the Chinese species would do better for you and grow faster. But they tend to grow slowly anyway in comparison to the deciduous ones. They don't make as many buds. They're a little bit uh, more slower growing. But I would say in general, I would say most of, most of them are hardy to between zone five and zone seven. Some of them, um, like on my website, because I sell them all over the place, and uh, on my website I have... Um, lists of ones that are native to warmer areas in their native countries so that, that those would be good ones for people to start with. But I have a lot of customers in the Atlanta area and um, they have g- good success with most everything that I sell. So you mentioned Atlanta, you mentioned mm-hmm. warmer. I, this is one of those things that excites me about epimediums, Karen, if I'm being honest. Like I've always, mm-hmm. one of the, the classic questions when you do anything with plants are, give me something that flowers in shadier conditions. What's um, the line there, right? Like how much sun, dappled light to get the best flower I would performance? Say, well, it depends on it depends on what part of the country you're in. You know, it's different from for different places. And what I do in my catalog is I describe how they perform for me in under good conditions and epimediums need well-drained soils. That's the one thing that they do need. They don't like heavy clay soils that hold the water, especially in winter. They need good drainage. A lot of them are um, tough and drought tolerant. Those are the ones that tend to be from um, Southern European countries like Turkey or uh, uh, places like that. Um, now I'm losing my train of thought here. No, so we're talking about just like soil composition, but also yeah. like flower power well drained, in humus shade. rich, humus rich. I can grow. I have epimediums that grow in like four hours of sun in midday sun, ten to two. But they're they don't dry out. They're in good, really good soil. Um, so it depends if you if you're in a, a further south, you want to. Um, they like bright shade for me or a little bit of sun. So the further south you go, the further um, south you go, or um, even in the Midwest when the, the um, summers are hot, you want to be careful. The good thing about epimediums is that they'll tell you when you, they, you have them planted in too much sun. The foliage will burn back, but since the stems are woody and underground, they still have uh, dormant buds that they can push up if the leaves get too dried out. Now, are all of the species of epimedium, they're, they're rhizomatous plants, so they're all underground rhizome? They are. Um, I would say most of the ones that I sell are clump-forming. Epimediums grow by, um, like you said, woody underground rhizomes, and, and what, the ones that I describe as spreading are the ones in which the rhizomes will grow like a couple of inches or up to maybe eight or ten inches a year. Um, the ones that are clump forming 
still have those rhizomes, but they have much smaller growth increments. Some of them might grow half an inch a year, and it basically stays in a clump or a quarter of an inch or just into, in, makes a big woody knot. So you can't even really tell how much they grow. And each species or um, variety is different. When you when you pull it up out of the ground and shake it out, they have a different look. The rhizomes can be skinnier or, you know, they can be as thick as a pencil or, you know, thin like a knitting needle. Um, or, like I said, a big woody knot if it's a clump-forming type that has a very, very uh, small, short increment of growth every year. Now, as someone who has a specialty epimedium nursery. I have to think, Karen, on a near weekly basis, you hear the term epimediums are good in dry shade. No, I hear epimediums love dry shade. That's what I hear. And <laughs> so, I is cringe. The, so is I this fake news, that. Karen? <laughs> and that's usually, if I, when I give a talk, that's usually the first thing that I address because they no epimedium loves dry shade. They'll tolerate, some of them will tolerate it better than other plants, but none of them like it. And you're not going to get your best performance out of them if you put them in dry shade. But a lot of the, a lot of people come to me and they say, I have a maple tree. I can't get anything to grow underneath of it. And epimediums are one of the few things that you can get to grow um, underneath of a maple or another shallow rooted tree, but you have to get them established. They're not cacti. You need to water them in their first growing season so that they establish a deep root system. And it's, like I said, it's generally ones that are from the Southern European area around the Mediterranean that are native to that area that tend to be um, drought tolerant. But most of the epimedium species, and I think there's over 70 species of epimediums now described in the scientific literature. Most of them, I would say, are not drought tolerant. They might be a little more drought tolerant than a herbaceous perennial, but most of them, you know, you're you're not going to get good performance out of them if you're stressing them out in a droughty site. You're not going to get the best growth out of them. They might Where do you think that came from, Karen? I've always been curious about this. I think it came from the fact that most of the kinds that were that are or were in the um in commerce are the drought tolerant ones. Mm. So um ex perolchicum fronleaton is drought tolerant, uh ex youngianum sulfurium is drought tolerant. Those are two of the real common ones. Ex rubrum they say is drought tolerant. I haven't had that experience. So um, it was those one. early introductions in the nursery the trade ones, that got into yeah. Europe. A lot of those are, are grown in a lot of the, the Dutch nurseries, too, that right. that became where the reputation was created for them as drought tolerant. That's so interesting because whenever I talk about them, I try to take that moment to put a, a pin in that bubble slightly and say, you know, these are woodland plants. Uh, they want humus-rich soil if you can give it right. to them. and. Right. When you, you, you said you, I know you give lectures and talks that on the subject, what's the general feedback? Um, I guess my perspective is I, I think people have an awareness if let's say you're a, a gardener 202 kind of thinker, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's not anywhere close to some of the other, like hellebores, uh, the breeding work on hellebores has been pretty uh aggressive in the last mm-hmm. 20 years it's not quite where like hellebores are today is that your general feel too that people just they maybe have an awareness but maybe they haven't grown them themselves they're sort of 
don't know what to do with them, don't know what to make of them yet. Right. I would say that definitely. Epimediums, there's lots of people that are hybridizing epimediums. That's one of the reasons I don't, because there's a lot of other people out there that, that, are, that are doing that. Um, I think it's interesting because um, like Amber Queen is uh, relatively newer in larger production in the United States now. Right. That one's been around for a while. I, we went to England and met um, Robin White, who... Uh, created Amber Queen, and he had it then. That was 1998. So yeah, there's um, some epimediums are getting into the trade. Um, we've had, you know, some of the major national gardening publications or TV shows come to us and do articles or television shows on epimediums, and it's amazing how little response you get from that. So people have been promoting them. It just doesn't seem like it's catching on like wildfire i guess i would always i I would say this i think in in, for people to listen to the podcast kids you know i talk Mm -hmm. about this all the time i don't think the nursery industry and a lot of the media attached to the nursery industry does a great job communicating about plants i really don't and i think this is one of those if you dumb down gardening which is what so many people have done for so long now plants like epimediums become a hard sell that it's you're not talking about them in this more nuanced way. And they are one of the more nuanced plants in a garden. They are. Um, they are. They don't they don't look good necessarily in the first two days you plant them. Uh, it's not this right. instant gratification. Right. It's going to take a, a few a few years for it to se- settle down and get to be a good, you know, sized plant. But yeah. But people, and like you you mentioned, we're we're so focused on the nursery trade and how a plant looks in a one gallon container in the th- fourth week in May, right. and not a plant like Epimedium that is more you know we'll use the classic expression here, Karen, like a fine wine, it gets better with age. But I think that's truly what Epimediums are. When you see established mature plants in gardens, I think it's one of the absolute best plants that you can see. It is, it is. But you know, some of the new hybrids are very floriferous, and they would give any annual a run for their money. Some of the new, uh, newer uh, hybrids, and many of them are hybrids with some of the ch- new Chinese species. So they have a different look than you know the hard shaped Japanese type. Give me a couple of cultivars like that. Which well, ones of, do you think that are new? Two of Daryl's um, introductions. One's called Pink Champagne, and if I had, uh, if I had to tell someone what my favorite epimedium was. I mean, I have dozens, hundreds of them that I like, but um, if I had to pick just one, that's the one I would pick. It's, you know, it has long uh, trusses of pink flowers that are held out over the fo- above the foliage. It has interesting spring foliage color, which is one of the things I think is the best thing about epimediums is all the different colors that uh, the different kinds come out with in the springtime. Um, Domino is like the sibling to pink champagne. It's it's kind of like the boy plant when pink champagne is the girl plant. It's a little bit bigger. It has more masculine colors in the flower, like a, a creamy white with a cranberry cup, um, and it's a bigger plant. But both of those are hybrids with chap with uh, Chinese species and really good growing plants. And those are getting into the trade. Walter's Nursery is. Um, providing those to like local garden centers. You know, you I am so excited that you mentioned Domino because I'm growing Domino here, Karen. Yep. Is it? 
I've seen quite, I've got like 20, 25 domino in the gardens here. Mm-hmm. A little bit of rebloom. Yep, the they do. It, Especially if you, if you have like a rainstorm or good conditions later in the season, you'll get rebloom from them. And a long bloom period as well. That's what's been so exciting about it. There was nothing more interesting to me than just a few weeks ago. I walk outside and there's Epimedium Domino in with a couple of inflorescence popped up. And right. I was like, this is magical. Where has this <laughs> plant been? I, I mean, it really is. And I, and do you feel like with you know people like yourself and I think are super important because it continues um, for for plants and introductions that maybe large scale growers don't want to put in production that you keep those going. And you mentioned how botanical gardens and people like that order from you and across the spectrum of mm-hmm. customers. Mm-hmm. Is is that something that in that way of like botanical gardens, institutions, horticultural folks, how, have they shown even more interest in this last decade or so in them? Because I know there's even been some like new, new species even collected in the wild in certain parts of Asia. Oh, yeah. There's been lots of new species in the, you know, since the 90s when um, a lot of the plant collectors were going into China. And since then, they've been coming back. And I mean, Daryl has a bunch of species that he's still growing that he thinks are new, you know, plants that are new species that he just hasn't had the uh, gotten the taxonomist to describe them in the scientific literature. So there are lots of new ones and they're all and they're different. You know, people say, oh, what epimedium should I get? And, I, and I'm and i thinking, well, what kind of situation do you have? Do you want something mm-hmm. that's really big? Do you want something that's really tiny? Do you want a spreader? Do you want a clumper? You know, do you want an evergreen one? There's lots of different characteristics about them. So you would use them in different situations in your garden. I feel excited about this conversation, Karen, because I think we're like having the conversation about a plant that 15 years from now, it will be more where like hellebores maybe are at today. I hope so. I hope so. I hope. I hope so. I mean, we've been trying to publicize them and tell people what great garden plants they are. If I could, you know, it would be good to get more nurseries um, interested in producing their own, and you know, having Walters pick out a few varieties. I mean, Amber Queen, you can get that in the market now, and that's another really showy hybrid with the Chinese blood in it. Um, so I hope so. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I, you know, I, I do a lot with Walter's garden. So there people are no stranger to them who listen to the podcast. Laura Robles production manager has been on as a guest. And I think, um, Hans Hansen, their hybridizer there is a great person to mm-hmm. have in that position because he's a little bit more experimental. Let's say he is. He's um, one of my customers. That's it. Willing to to grow really cool, interesting things, even though necessarily the nursery industry, they haven't been huge successes over the years, but he's still willing to put that time and dedication into right. it because that's where, because everyone who's into plants, right. as you said earlier, Karen, the real plant geeks among us, right? We know that's where great plants eventually come from. Mm-hmm. We know that. The nursery industry is not always growing the best plants or the most interesting, but we got to get it to that place. You mentioned Domino. You mentioned Pink Champagne. Give us, if you were going to say, this person has not grown up in mediums before, besides Pink Champagne and Domino, what's a, a good sample size of epimediums to give them some of that idea of diversity as the plant grows? 
Well, I, I think um, if they can get their hands on some of the grandiflorums, they they are easy to grow. They're not as drought tolerant as some of the other ones, but um, they have a wide. They have lots of cultivars, a wide range of you know foliage, spring foliage colors, different um, different colors, flower colors, and relatively large flowers for an epimedium, like an inch and a half in diameter is large for an epimedium. But some of them are heavy bloomers, you know, they'll have a lot of flowers. So what epimediums um, lack in big flowers, they make up in the numbers of uh, flowers. Touch, and touch lots on of them... that for a second, Karen. Touch on that for a second for mm-hmm. us, because I think you just, that's a real important thing to hit with epimediums, that the flowers are not big, but there's lots of them. Give right. me, uh, define that for us, you know, paint that picture for us, like a, an epimedium that's very happy where it's at. It's been there five or six years on some of these heavy flowered grandiflorums that you're talking about, mm-hmm. how many flowers per flower spike could somebody be looking at? It depends on the cultivar, but basically I show pictures in my lectures of just a plant that's, you know, two feet in diameter covered with flowers. There's flowers all over the top of the plant, like an annual. So I don't know exactly how many they would have, but some a lot of the... Japanese species, the Grandiflorums, the Exyungianums, which is a hybrid between Diphyllum and Grandiflorum, they have lots of flowers. Um, so if you have them in a good situation, and like the ones that bloom best for me, I have them in a little bit of sunlight here in Massachusetts. So that makes a difference. They'll, they'll uh, grow faster. They'll get more flowers. They'll have better spring foliage color um, if you give them some good light. So for you in Massachusetts, when do you typically see them starting to bloom? Uh, my like the peak around here is around Mother's Day. So they start blooming. Some of the early ones bloom the end of April, and then the, there's still some. The Chinese ones tend a lot of them tend to bloom later in the season. Um, so I'll have them blooming um, through the end of May. Okay, really? So there's about a four to six week. Oh yeah, yeah. I would say definitely four weeks. Yeah, you'll get you'll get some like the really late blooming ones. There's one called Membranaceum that doesn't even start till June here usually. Really? So uh, depending on what, and and you know even some of the graniforms, some some of them bloom early, some of the cultivars, some of them bloom late. So it Mm -hmm. depends on, just depends on (laughs) the individual uh, plant. So if you gardened, you go. Hellebore, mm-hmm. Epimedium, mm-hmm. Hosta, mm-hmm. a steel bee. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, we're talking a pretty good amount of flower power in a shade setting. Oh yeah, yeah, in the shade. And, and I, that's you know, you mentioned Atlanta, and one of the first things that struck me about that is there's a lot of older residential neighborhoods in Atlanta with a lot of high overstory trees mm-hmm. that produce essentially high shade, like you already mentioned. Mm-hmm. It is that that combination of high shade with like a, a garden quality soil. Yeah. If you have those two things, do you, do you think for most people, this is a relatively easy plant to get into? Oh, it is. Yeah. Good drainage. That's what you need. That's, I mean, I've seen them growing in subsoil in the sun in my area and doing fine. <laughs> okay, so I wanted I wanted to ask you about that because this is very true with a steel bee as well and uh, woodland anemone as well, another one, anemone ubehensis and anemone tomatosa, that if your soil quality is is good, 
mm-hmm. and you're in a more northern latitude garden, you can get away with more sun. Is that true with epimedium? Oh, you yeah. You get a sure. little bit more sun on them if you're oh, in a yeah. northern garden Definitely. and you have soil. Yeah. Kids, this is a plant that everybody should be growing. What are you guys doing with your lives? Go get the epimedium. Okay? <laughs> this is ridiculous. That's Don't let a, just that's Karen part and of I the problem, though. It's hard to find them in the garden centers. They're, you know, if you really search around, you can find them. But there's a few mail order places around the country that you can get them too, if you want now, any sort I, of selection. And I think it's about, you know, it's not the immediate gratification plant that is at a lot of those garden centers. Um, I went right. into a, a local garden center here recently and they had some epimedium. In fact, it was um, uh, it was pink delight, I believe, Karen, mm-hmm. if memory serves me right. And, you know, I could see it from an average novice gardener kind of perspective. It was just sort of a green leafy thing in a container, right? It, you had no idea mm-hmm. what it was. And I think so many times in the nursery industry, we put too much pressure on the plant to sell itself, right? Like the plant's just got to do all the heavy lifting, right? It's got to sit there on a bench at a place and it's got to <laughs> scream at people. Bite. It does. It has to scream. Yeah. yeah. Unless and you know what it is. Unless, you know, you have that knowledge, that knowledge bank. Let's hit a couple of other cultivars that I had. So, people, this is where I personally indulge. I just get to pick Karen's brain for a few seconds before I put in an order with Karen when we're done with this podcast. Because I have a lot of epimedium I'm looking to add, people. So uh, you had already mentioned Grandiflorum. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the cultivar on your website. I think it's Lilithi is the name Lilithi. of it. Yep. Lilithi is one of the ones that you can sometimes find in the nurseries. That one's been around for a while. That's a nice one. It has um, it has beautiful flowers. It tends to be a little bit later blooming than many of the other grandiflorums, and it has a little bit of uh, purple uh, foliage color in the spring. So, Do you think that's another under? Th- and I know you've mentioned it a couple of times. I'm just trying to hit some of these exclamation points. The foliage on epimediums mm-hmm. from from someone who has 140 Japanese maples on the property, Karen. Clearly, I'm into foliage. <laughs> is just incredible some it of the is. new growth push on them is that sort of like it's a it's a two for one right there's some plants they flower you know it's like a steel beet the right. foliage is okay some of the new ones they got some gold foliage yada 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 whatever yeah but this is a plant when the foliage emerges it's spectacular and maybe we're not as a gardening community we're not singing that praise high enough. Right. And I, I push the foliage color because a lot of times it lasts for a longer time. Um, in the spring, between the blooms and the foliage color, I can get about six weeks of interest out of one plant. A lot of the um, epimediums, grandiflorum in particular, has the second growth flush. So it'll come. Epimediums bloom as soon as the ground thaws out, as soon as the spring comes. So. They'll push their flowers up. Um, they'll push their foliage up. If, it, if it's a variety that has the spring foliage color, it'll have its most intense color then. And then as the um, flowers fade, the, the spring foliage color fades in that first growth flush, and then it'll push up a top knot of secondary foliage, which has um, a spring foliage color to it as well, but not as, as deep. I think it has to do with the the temperatures, the cooler it is, the better the spring foliage color. So I can get, you know, something that's blooming in early May and I'll have, if it's a cool, long, cool spring, I'll have foliage color still in the first week of June here. 
and on the leaf size, mm-hmm. what's like the the largest size leaf that we typically come across that has some of that good foliage color and spring push versus some of the smaller varieties? Well, most of the largest foliage, I know leaves that are nine inches long, but they don't tend to have very much spring foliage color. Some of the Chinese species have that. Um, let's see. Bicolor giant is a um, graniflorum that has very big rounded leaves, and that has good uh, reddish spring foliage color. Um, that's probably about four or five inches in diameter of the leaves. Which is crazy good. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy good. I mean, that's every bit of some of the, like, smaller Brunera that are on the market, you know, just sort of staying in that, like, shady kind of vibe world for foliage that you've got. And what I find fascinating, and of course, people, I'm ranting about epimediums. You guys know how I roll on these subjects. But to me, the leaf, what makes it so spectacular on some of them is they almost look like they're painted. Yeah. There's this speckled molting happening. Right. They have different colors. Sometimes it's the whole leaf that can be almost black and then it greens up or it could have a dark edge to it or a red edge to it or speckling, you know, flecking on the leaf or like um, irregular modeling of kind of reds and browns and purple colors in them. It depends on the variety and the species if it's going to have flecking or not. And some... Some species, there's one Chinese species that I like that never, people don't buy it. It never sells. It's called Lishishenii. And some of the foliage on that, the new spring foliage on certain clones of it, it has like either limey green foliage or like a salmon colored foliage. Or some of them have modeling on the leaves. Some of them have purple modeling. So it depends on the clones. That's that. Okay. So you also mentioned something and I'm happy you did. I was reading all the descriptions on your website, you know, OCD style, Karen. And you mentioned that there is a species or cultivar, both, that the foliage in the winter goes to like a very dark purple color. Which one is that? Oh, there's a couple of them. There's one called Black Sea that gets dark foliage. It's a running, it's one of the drought tolerant running types. And then there's a cultivar of... um Panatum subspecies colchicum, which is another one of the real good drought-tolerant ones, that is called Thunderbolt. And that clone came from a collection that the um, National Arboretum made that Daryl introduced under a cultivar name. Because it either, depending on how much light it gets, it either has like really dark, almost black, like a purpley black leaf with green veins, or it can get like a reddish mahogany color with green veins and it depends it's the same clone in different parts of the nurseries it's different colors and i think it's just because of the amount of light that it has on it now that same leaf when we we move into spring does the same leaf transition over to a more standard green green tone yes in spring in the summer that cultivar has like a glaucous bluish color leaf sort of it's beautiful foliage if people are looking for foliage i put it in wreaths you know christmas wreaths because it's so striking when when i cut my nursery back it it kills me i make like a bouquet of the leaves when i I cut the pots back okay so that is something i've i've talked with um some higher end floral designers that i know that do and have used epimedium foliage and epimedium flower mm-hmm. in arranging and, and design work. 
is, I mean, we're, I'm not saying this is the lead thing, Karen, to talk, think of epimediums on, but clearly that's something that can be done too. And, and there's very few things in the universe that look like them. Right, right. And actually the domino and the pink champagne are good ones to use for that because they're sort of later bloomers and their foliage is hardened off by the time the flowers come out. So they tend to condition better and they hold their form better. A lot of the epimediums, when they're blooming, their foliage is just in crazy growth. So it's really soft and it's hard to get it to condition. Um, but I think that those two would be good for the for using for floral arrangements, which so I suspect wow. is why you have 25 plants of them, right? No, I, no, Karen. I have 25 plants of them because I'm awesome. Like that, <laughs> that is it. It is, I, well, one of the things I like to do, and I, I talk with this, uh, just about a lot of the suppliers that I get plants from, um, I tell them, I would much rather talk about plants that we think are great that we haven't done a good job communicating about. I, I often walk by, I've got some perennial hibiscus this year that I brought in a variety called Perfect Storm. And I walk by it and I don't feel, Karen, like it needs any help. Yeah. It's got these giant comical 10-inch wide flowers right. on it. Uh, it's <laughs> in just, your face. Yes. <laughs> and, it's, and it's great. And there's a place for all these things in a garden. Mm -hmm. It's a very you know Christopher Lloyd kind of moment for me. I, I don't look at those blousy flowers and dislike them. But there is an elegance to an epimedium that's established and has some time under it. It's well cultivated in a garden that you have to have to have a good garden. You have to have those plants. And in particular, in the, the habitat and the exposure that epimediums do so well in, I think is such a key place for people you know where we have foundation plants with like morning eastern exposure that changes mm -hmm. over to a little bit of a dappled light yeah that then gives afternoon protection there's so many functional choices that it would do really well in also that i think we do need you know to, to i mean do people need to buy 25 of them karen yeah they do they should they <laughs> should they, they, they should email you or call you or send a message or send smoke signals or a carrier pigeon and, and do the same thing Let's talk about flower color here as we start to head towards the home stretch. So Domino, we mentioned, sort of got that white with a little bit of a kiss of mm -hmm. uh, pinkish red on it and mm -hmm. pink champagne, the name implies. But there's a lot more than that. Oh, like, there is. That's there's one of the of things that has really excited me about them, that the violet tones, the purple tones. Give us just a little bit of a sampling of that. Okay. There's a lot of um, violet and yellows, I would say. But there's white. Um, uh, oranges, reds, true pinks, not as many true pinks, but there are some that I would say don't, you know, they aren't lavenders, they're, they're true pink. Um, so it sort of goes the gamut, but not only the color of the flowers, but the color of the foliage has a, a wide range as well in the spring. Most of them, um, once the foliage hardens off, they turn to green or some shape of, you know, some shade of green, light green, dark green, or like I said on Thunderbolt, has like a glaucous cast, so it looks almost blue in the garden. Um, there are a couple uh, variegated ones, and they keep their variegation pretty well through the season. It kind of fades toward the end, but um, you still have the white variegation in the leaf. 
trying to think if there's any other colors that I haven't mentioned. Blue is about the only thing that they don't have, the only color that they don't have. Which is really amazing. And it's really interesting. And and again, congratulations to yourself, to Daryl, to anyone else that's been involved in the world of epimediums, because clearly, even without like sort of the the large nursery, heavy production number uh, places, you've all done an incredible job creating and curating these collections. Because here you and I are speaking in 2020, you're mentioning back in the early 90s when some of these things were coming out of uh, China, mm-hmm. that for this last 25, 30 year period, it was people like yourself who have been doing all this work. So mm-hmm. congratulations to you, Karen. Give yourself a pat on the back. Well, thank I mean, you. Th- that's incredible that we have this range today, like without the the major nursery support across the world. And come on, people. I mean, it's, again. A lot of what we see in every industry, right? It's not always the best thing, it's just the most available thing. I always make this joke. It's not the best plant, it's the fastest crop. Right. It's not the best tasting tomato, it's just the tomato that grows fast. It doesn't mean it's any right. good. Right. That's really the same thing with these. If people have problems with epimedium, we've talked about soil. You've talked about sun exposure, that the, the foliage will start to die back some. Mm-hmm. Are there any other inherent problems disease-wise? Are slugs and snails an issue? Anything like that? Slugs, I mean, slugs will eat some of the foliage, but I don't even really treat them for any slugs. Um, mostly the insect that bothers them is the black vine weevil. But I would say most times it doesn't, it mars the foliage a little bit, and the, and the larvae will eat the roots, um, but it doesn't. It's not something that's going to kill your plant, and you can't really get rid of it because they, it feeds on rhododendrons, and we're never going to get rid of all the rhododendrons. <laughs> and rhododendrons <laughs> Sp- are everywhere. Sp- so. Spoken from someone who lives in the New England area, okay? yeah, like, yeah, been, as someone who's traveled around the country quite a bit. I uh, people. If you only knew how overplanted rhododendrons became yeah. <laughs> in, the, so, in the whole New England area. So black vine weevil is here to stay. I treat my pots with uh, beneficial nematodes to keep the populations down. But the other thing is voles will chew on them. But um, to be honest, they go after other things in my garden more than the epimediums. And generally, they don't eat the entire rhizome. So you can just sort of punch it back down in the soil, put some soil over it, and it'll root in again. So it's easy to to um, fix that problem. The uh, some people have trouble with viruses. I'm very I propagate all my own stock. I'm not buying stock in all the time. So I uh, monitor to make sure there's no viruses in my plants. Um, but you should be careful about that. Uh, generally, it manifests itself in uh, sort of like yellow. Um, Squiggles on the leaf, I guess, is what how you would call it. Like a Almost yellow looks modeling. like presents itself like a mosaic kind yes, of look, like yes. a yellowy green. And basically what you want to do is throw that plant away in the garbage, not in your compost. Get rid of it. Got it. But, so talk about it from your perspective as a nursery, right? Someone places an order. When do you ship your plants out and what do people receive as far as plant size? Is it a division off of a plant? How are you growing them as far as production? And then when do people order and what do they get? Okay. I grow them in small pots because I do a lot of mail order and I also run this nursery by myself. So it's easier for me to haul flats of plants that aren't, you know, in gallon pots. So my pots are two and a half inches square by three and a half inches deep. 
makes it really easy to mail to people. Um, I ship in June, uh, and I'm shipping now. I, that's what I did this morning, packing plants to ship out and through the middle of October. So that's my shipping season. And when people receive their plant, are you growing most of your things from divisions? All of them. I all grow of all of it from division. Which and is I, really, and I, which is really interesting, folks. If you don't know, I was having this conversation earlier today about hellebores and you know peonies. People are probably the most familiar with when it comes to division, but that is a, a that is one of the reasons why epimediums are also slow in a nursery speak slow because they have to be divided. And do you do all of the division yourself? Do you have help there with that? Nope, I do all the division myself. Some people will grow them from seed. They're very, they're much slower from seed, um, and apparently they have been able to tissue culture them within the last few years. But I don't know of anyone who's actively doing that. Maybe that's where they're getting the pink champagne from. That's what I was going to ask you about because it's one of the things that has also you've seen hellebores go to a little bit of tissue culture. It's helped with speed on those mm-hmm. get them into the market a little bit faster. Where do you think for you right now? I've got to ask you the delicate question. So Daryl ropes you into this whole epimedium thing, Karen. <laughs> now here you are, you know, how many years later doing it? I mean, for you personally, right? Were you a plant person? Like oh, when yeah. you guys got, oh, got together yeah. already? That's how I we got together. Daryl I met Daryl at Longwood. We were in different student programs at Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania. Um I, So you guys I were a, like a plant couple. You were a plant we couple. Were. I mean, that's that's the most plant couple, by the way, kids. You didn't know. <laughs> Meeting someone at Longwood Gardens outside of Philadelphia, which is, I think, safe to say, Karen, probably the most esteemed uh, botanical garden in the United States, that lo- meeting someone at Longwood and you're both plant people and you end up being a couple, regardless mm-hmm. of what happens later, yep. that makes you a plant couple. There's no doubt. That's the most plant couple story a person can be. So you guys meet there and go on. Yeah. And then um, he he started the nursery, but he never really wanted to run a nursery. He ran it for a few years, and then um, I was working at a botanic garden. That's what my training was in, in the education department. So um, he convinced me to quit my job and help him with the business because he wanted to pursue hybridizing more. That's what he likes to do. So now he's working uh, with Coreopsis, and you can see his the results of his hybridizing in all sorts, almost any garden center I go into has some of his plants for sale in there. So I'm dealing with the specialty market and he's dealing with the, um, the, uh, mass market for Coreopsis. So I'm, he's making a living and I'm, I'm barely making a living. <laughs> That's how I describe <laughs> well, it. How, how did, do you notice that though? That's sort of a trend with a lot of, um, you know, locally here in Tennessee, I'll, I'll use Don Shadow as an example of that. Mm-hmm. That there's um a collector mind associated sometimes to plants, and you know you you know Daryl is working on epimedium, and now I can't think of a more further <laughs> from epimedium thing in Coreopsis. Oh, I know that that it almost is that kind of mindset sometimes. You know that people I don't want to use the word obsessive compulsive all the time, Karen, but maybe a tad. And it's like all in on that one plant for a minute and then next plant. Is that your usual sort of feeling on the subject sometimes too? 
Um, that's that's what I thought of that Daryl did, that he would focus on one plan and then go from one to the other. But actually, he's been do- working on the Coriopsis for a long time. Since, I mean, I, I started working full-time in this business in 2001. And and he was started his, well, he had already been doing his hybridizing, but he uh, had more time for that then, so. Wow. And how is the, for you, running a, a small specialty nursery, like what are the, the ways that you find that you get new customers? Like Like how does that work? I'm just curious because we've clearly moved into I was complaining to you before we started recording that because of online schooling in the 2020 global pandemic situation, that internet connectivity has been spotty. Is that where primarily most of your sales come through? Is through the website? Like, like how do you navigate that? Because that well, seems like a challenge. Yeah, I think um, this, my, this nursery that I run is not a huge business. It, it supports me and that's about it. Um but mostly the customers come from, I would say, word of mouth from other customers. And also, Daryl used to do talks around the country about uh, his collecting trips in China. And I've been doing talks the last maybe eight years. Um, and so I see, you know, clusters of customers that come from those areas. Plus, uh, we've been really lucky in that, like I said, you know, Martha Stewart living uh, fine gardening, horticulture magazine, they've all come to us for um, information and pictures uh, for articles or television programs over the years. Every year I get, you know, uh, all, or a podcast like this. Um, so that's mostly how uh, I've been promoting it is through talks. I do sales up and down the East Coast. I was in um, uh North Carolina last year doing a sale. So, um, talking to people about them. Yeah. And are there other plants that you have too at the nursery that you, that you, or are there plants that you're passionate about? That's the thing, Karen. No one who's into plants is, well, some people are. It's a hard group to find just yeah. one specific plant. But I have to imagine doing what you do, there's other things you enjoy growing as well. Well, I don't have a lot of time to grow a lot of other things, but um, this place that I moved to, um, I've, I've, I'm old enough so that I'm not making the gardening mistakes I did when I was younger and just planting anything just because somebody gave it to me. I'm, I have a wish list of, uh, of plants that I want to put in the garden, and there's too many to talk about. Mm. I'm from the botanic garden world, so I know, I know a little bit about a lot of different plants. So yes, right, I have, and I. And do you feel like editing, right? Like that's the hardest thing. I think the beginning when people get really passionate about plants, editing is hard. Yeah. It's but not hard you, for me anymore. If it doesn't yeah. do what I want it to do, off with their head. Right. And I, I tell people this a lot on social media when we do our Instagram live walkthroughs daily that sometimes you got to be ruthless, right? If a plant is not doing something for you, it's been there for a few years, you've given it what it wants and you're still like meh. Doesn't you know? Doesn't bring you joy, kind yeah, of talk. Yeah. There's there's too many plants. There's too many to. things to yeah, choose. There's from only now. much so much acreage you can take care of. That is so true, and the work that you put into it, I think, for most people, you know, you want to get back. And to me, that's one of the things I appreciate about Epimedium is it strikes me as a plant that if you get good cultivars of it and you give it good condition, that it's a plant that will get better. Yeah, it's there for the long haul. It's not a it's not quick a quick fix, but it's 
the plant that will be growing underneath all the weeds when you abandon your garden. Yes. See, that's so important, people, because just the other day I was over. I'll pick on a plant, Karen. Let's pick on a plant together. <laughs> I, I was over in the area, in here in the south, Digitalis purpurea. There's a few newer cultivars that are supposed to be first-year bloomers, not biennials, yada, yada, yada. And I brought them in. And quite honestly, people, they looked like trash, right? They don't love the southern climate. It's not a big thing for them. They bloomed. They looked decent for a minute. Now the plants look like garbage, right? So I literally just lifted one and it had no root mass that it established at all. It was super unhappy. You could tell. I don't want that plant. Right. But, you know, if you would have seen that plant at the peak of like latter stages of April when it had a couple of flower spikes on it, you would have been like, ooh, but look at it now. It's no good. And it's going to go away soon. Anyways, is I, I feel like that's the messaging sometimes with Epimedium, that it's a plant that does get better with age, as you mentioned, and it'll stay there in a garden. Mm-hmm. Let's let's wrap up here. I want you to give me. We already sort of hit this topic a little bit. Let's just do it one more time to reaffirm it. What are like the Hall of Fame five? <laughs> right? Like the, I know it's tough. I'm asking you to, to whittle down a huge group to like five, like ones that are just even on the top of your head. Like ones that you're just like, you know, I look forward to seeing that in the spring. I either look forward to the, the foliage, the flower combo of both. But these are ones that I think are either underappreciated or are just that good. Okay. Well, Daryl has another um, introduction called Ninja Stars, which is a running uh, arrow-shaped leaf, evergreen with spiny edges, uh, as a medium with uh, sprays of yellow flowers. That's a good one. And that grows well for us here. It would grow better further south. Um one of another one of his hybrids is a ex rubrum called Sweetheart, which I have growing in the crack of a rock in my four hour a day midday sun area, and it doesn't um, fry the foliage there. So that one's really drought tolerant. It has a nice red edge to the leaf and small pink flowers in the springtime. That's a nice one for a good bold uh, foliage texture. One of the ones I like that's another good drought tolerant one which is a clump former. Most of the drought-tolerant ones tend to seem to be the spreading types, but this one's a clump former. It's called Lilac Cascade and has hot pink foliage when it first comes out, and then the the pink fades to the edge of the leaf. It has little um, short um, trusses of uh, lavender flowers that come out from between the leaves, and that has really good foliage substance, and it's a bigger leafed plant so it has a bold texture to it that's one of my favorites because it's tough and it's beautiful and easy to grow um i like the variegated one we just called it variegated number one it's a semper virens has white swirls in the leaves when it first comes out in the spring it has apricot and white and like a limey green variegation to it has white flowers and it's small a little clump former makes a, a mound about I don't know, 12 to 14 inches in diameter. What else? What's a really big cultivar? One that well, the bicolor that giant that I was talking about. Yeah. One of my that one's like thigh high. It's one really? of my friends told me it's like a small shrub in the garden. It's a grandiflorum. It has hot pink 
flowers. They bloom underneath the foliage, and that's one of the things about epimedium. Some of them bloom under the foliage, but the leaves are so small when the flowers bloom that you can see them from across the garden. They have long um, sprays of uh, hot pink big flowers underneath the foliage. That's one of the more popular ones here, especially when people come to my open garden and see it in the flesh. Um, Another one that's called sun showers has light light yellow flowers. It blooms for a long time, about three weeks or four weeks, depending on the how cool your spring is. It has uh, tiny leaves; they're deciduous, but they're they're like flecked with uh, dark purple, like a brownish purple um, color in the in the springtime. So that gives you a long season of interest. And that was one is, is one of Kelly Dodson from Far Reaches Farm in the Washington State. That's his hybrid. That well, one has. You mentioned evergreen and deciduous. Is that strictly just based upon species, or does that vary at all amongst cultivars in a species? Uh, sometimes things are semi evergreen, and it varies. I would say mostly the species. It's either deciduous or evergreen. Some, Karen? you know, like some of the grandiforms have leaves that will last longer than some of the other ones, but generally it goes with the species. Karen, I cannot thank you enough for two things. Number one, joining me today. Number two, keeping awesome epimediums out there in the market. Because I went on your website at Garden Vision Epimediums and I was just like enthralled with it for <laughs> the entire time I was looking at them. I was like, I need this one. I need this one. I need this one. And I need this one. So a giant thanks to you for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you, too, for helping me promote, promote Epimediums. It's not just that I sell them. It's a really good plan. Cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way Got no rhyme for the reason why it's wrong 